The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. This morning, our Father, we are again thankful for your word, thankful as always that we actually are able to hold a copy of it, but even more so that we should just be thankful that you've spoken to us in your word. You continue to speak. Your word is alive, uh, as Apostle Paul wrote. It is alive. It's living. It's powerful. And we're thankful for what it can do as we read it and understand it. And we ask that we might do that today. And I always ask especially that I would communicate these things clearly and accurately uh, for uh, the benefit of all of us. We all need to hear uh, your word uh, communicated carefully. And we ask that that might be the case in the hour to come. Amen. thought for a second I was going to come down with hiccups at the last minute right there. In Titus chapter 3, if you take your Bibles, if you haven't already turned there in Titus 3, we're going to go back up to verse 4, and I'm going to read down from verse 4 in this context where we're talking about that God had saved us. This technically on my outline is under that section in the outline, but I kind of brought everything back over a little bit here. But if you look there in verse 4, it says, But when the kindness of God our Savior in his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by a washing that regenerated us and renewed us by the Holy Spirit, whom he, the Holy Spirit that is, whom he poured, excuse me, whom he, the Holy Spirit, he, the Father, poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified or declared righteous by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope that comes from eternal life. This then is a trustworthy or faithful statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently or affirm this, that those who have believed in God should be careful or should organize themselves to engage in good works or set their frame of mind to organize themselves for good works. These things are good and profitable for men, but shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, which are unprofitable and worthless. I'm only going to get through verse of what I originally I thought I would do, um, verses 8, and 8, 10, and 11 all together because they're kind of a package, but I can't get through everything, in, at least in my mind, everything that we got going uh, in verse 9. Uh, in one day, so I broke these out into two. He's told them back in verse 8, uh, he told them in the context, we aren't saved by doing good works. He said that back up there. It's not according to works of righteousness which we've done. That's not why he saved us. But he did save us to do good works, and so we saw that in verse 8. When we were together last time, we were looking, well, last week we were talking about thankfulness, but when we were in Titus, that he was encouraging us to be those people that are setting our mind to organize ourselves for good works, looking for opportunities of good works to serve in the body of Christ. And so we're supposed to be doing that, and he says, ends verse 8 by saying that those good works, carrying out good works in the body of Christ, which is what he's getting at, is good and profitable. But he's going to warn Titus, he says, but you need to shun these things because this is unprofitable, he's going to say at the end of this. Unprofitable and worthless. Now what's unprofitable and worthless? Verse 8. To shun, it says here in uh, verse 9, excuse me, but shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. Now, the first thing he's, when he talks about this, our Bibles say shun foolish controversies. And that, I've, I've translated that in my thing, moronic debates. Moronic debates. Stay away from moronic debates. Now, he's not talking about just general moronic debates out there that you can get into moronic debates about politics and, and economics and uh, all kinds of other stuff going on in the world. He's talking about moronic debates in this, con in this context, verse 9, about the law. And what we're going to see borne out is you have people in the church that want to teach law. And he says, don't get drawn into the debates and arguments that these people have. And we'll see this as we're going through this. So he says, uh, avoid this. And this actually seems to, it implies that there is a place for a careful debate. 
versus a moronic debate. Now, what's a careful debate? What's the difference? I would say, and, and I'm translating it debate, but it's the, the word that he's using here in verse 9. It's seekings, debatings. You've got people that are going to come and they're going to actually say, say something like this and you're going to go, well, the word of God says this. Now, a lot of times, if, if it's well-reasoned, they're going to say, well, I've got a verse from the word of God that says this over here. And you need to stop and look at that. You need to say, well, what, okay, the Bible says this. And I've told you this many times before, and some of you have gone through that with us, that you have a lot of people out there that want to put Christians under law, and most of the time those people don't really know what they're affirming. We'll touch on that here in a little bit. But one of the best things to do, and this is borne out back in chapter 1, is that if you know what God has for you to do, how God wants you to live, God wants you to live by faith, with respect to his grace today, that's how God wants you to live. He doesn't want you to live by the law today. If you know that then, then you can take that word and you can go back to those scriptures that don't tell you how to live, namely the law, and you can say, well, let's look at what those actually say. And you can point that out and say, do we really do that? Is that really what we do? And I think, honestly, most people today... Now, there are segments within Christendom some of those people might be believers, but in Christendom, that they teach, uh, they they hold to a doctrine uh, called uh, it just that it was there and it's gone all of a sudden. They really want to enforce the law, the whole law and everything. I mean, they want the penalties and everything. The only thing they don't want is the sacrificial system, because they realize Christ already died, so they've kind of done away with that. But they want all the rest of the law imposed on humanity. And they think like a number of these people were in Canada and the United States and they thought we could oppose the law here and we could make this country run under the Mosaic Law because they think that we should be under the Mosaic Law. Stone. What? Stone. They do. That's exactly what they believe. They believe they, they believe stone. They believe in all the, the capital punishment, the whole business out of the law. They, they, they firmly establish that. And I've read, I've read some of this stuff. So you're, you are going to deal with people like this sometimes. People that are going to want to enforce these things. But he says, well, let's go through and let's look at what he says here in this, as he's talking about this, that these debates, he says, are foolish. They're moronic. And I want you to keep in your, you don't have to keep your finger here, but turn with me back over to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15. Acts chapter 15. And if you look with me at verse 1, Acts 15 and verse 1, and so, so some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, I'm just going to tell you, I don't, I think part of the problem is it says you cannot be saved. I don't think he's talking about eternal salvation, being righteous before God for all eternity. I believe they're using the word saved as you can't grow, you cannot mature. Because that's what's borne out in the debate that they end up having here, okay? Is they're trying to figure out what should the, those people who have believed already do. So let's just keep reading. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, notice that there's a debate. So Paul and Paul, Paul here was engaged in a debate, but it says not just a little one, it was a great debate with them. It was then determined, it was decided in this case that Paul, Barnabas, and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to the brothers. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and elders, and they reported all that God had done for them. And certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees, that word sect, we're going to come back to that word next week, that group of the Pharisees who had believed. So are these believers or unbelievers? They're believers. Believers. They stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, again, this is something that I think a lot of Christians don't read this properly. I can't tell you how many commentaries I have that come to this passage and they go, these guys, yeah, oh, they said they believed, but they didn't really believe because they really thought salvation was by circumcision, obedience to law. Baloney. That is not the issue. They think 
that people grow and live by the law. If you were saved in the Old Testament, if you were saved from the time that God gave the law to, to Israel through Moses to the time of the cross, if you were saved in that period of time, when you got saved, did you get saved by obeying the law? Were you eternally righteous before God by the law? No. And then you went on and lived by grace and faith. No. You lived by obeying the law. Which is exactly. So they don't see any difference. In fact, if you were to go on over to chapter 21 in the book of Acts, you would see that when Paul gets down to Jerusalem, the Jews in Jerusalem that are believers are still doing what? Keeping the law and going to the temple. They have not yet understood that that is all over with. It's done. And so this is, this is still a problem, but I'm surprised by how many people, they don't get this, because I, part of the problem, I really think, is people don't know how to read the word saved. They see saved, all they can think of is eternal salvation from damnation and hell. It's all they see. But there's more to that word in there. And so then it says in verse 6, And the apostles and elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been, what notice it says, much debate. Now Paul's telling Titus, don't get drawn into these debates. Avoid these. But Paul and Barnabas here twice, they were involved in much debate. First over there in Antioch and then now down here in Jerusalem. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. So is, does Peter think that these Gentiles were saved by keeping the law? No. Does he accept the fact that these Gentiles are believers? Yes. Now we come to this key verse. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of these people that would like to be believers but aren't believers yet? Is that what it says? No, by placing upon the neck of the disciples. See, he looks at these, these Gentile believers as disciples. He says, placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers were able to bear, nor we. In other words, we can't do it. Peter's looking at this going, I can't keep the law. I blow it. And my fathers blew it. My grandfather and all the way back. None of us have ever been great law keepers. And he says, but why? But we believe that we are saved through grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. In other words, Peter's listening to what Paul's saying, and Peter's going, you know what? We've been keeping the law, he says, but Paul's right. This is true for us Jews, too. We also are going to have to learn to live or be saved by grace, not by law. And all the multitude then kept silent, and they were listening to Bar Barnabas and Paul. Paul, as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And then James gets up. And what they end up deciding for these people are not ways of getting saved. They're deciding on behavior that these Gentiles should, should practice to not cause problems to the unsaved Jews. They want to help these Gentiles not offend unsaved Jews. If you read the rest of the chapter, which we could spend the whole time doing that, but we wouldn't get through the rest of our study, you can see that that's what they're doing. But the point was, we've seen here three times in this passage, we've seen that there was a lot of debate about this issue. And it was important for them to go through this. In fact, if we were to go over to the book of Galatians, where Paul talks in Galatians 2, Paul went down there. Paul actually had a goal. Did Paul know how Christians were supposed to live? Yes, Paul knew how Christians were supposed to live. Who taught Paul how Christians were supposed to live? Jesus Christ. He says that in Galatians. That he says, I didn't get this from men. I didn't think it up. People didn't teach it to me. This is from a revelation from Jesus Christ himself. He was the one that said, this is the way we're living now. We're not living by the law. We're going to be living by grace. And we're going to be living by faith. This is what you're going to do. And this is what Paul taught. So some people come to this like Paul's going in Galatians like, I got to go down there because I don't, maybe I got it messed up. I don't think Paul thought that at all. I think Paul's basically going down there saying, I want you to call off the dogs 
because I don't want the work that God is doing through us out there to just be undermined every time we're done. Could you imagine what that'd be like? Paul and Barnabas are itinerant ministers. They come into a city. They're there for three or four months. People get saved. They teach these people how to live. They go on down the road, and they're, they're gone a week, two weeks, and there's other guys coming in. They're going, hey, hey, we're brothers with Paul and Barnabas too, but Paul and Barnabas didn't give you the whole story. You also need to get circumcised and keep the law. And word eventually gets back to Paul. And Paul gets tired of this because what that does is that undermines the message of living by the Holy Spirit by grace and faith, which is that's the message of Galatians. But that's why there was a debate. If we had somebody come into our church here and try to teach that we're supposed to be living under the law, and they, and they were persistently just trying to, every time he turned around, would it be an appropriate place for some of us to stand up and say, that's not what the Word of God says, and to point to them in Scripture what's going on? It would be appropriate. But Paul's saying over there in Titus in chapter 3 that this is a problem with foolish or moronic debates. In other words, these are people that are going to try to impose all these details of the law, and they really should know better. You know, over there, they didn't know better. And you know, there's a lot of Christians today that don't know better. I might have told you this, but I don't know, three, four weeks ago? I don't remember how long ago. It's, it's drifted. It wasn't not that long ago. I got together with some other people that aren't here in the church but I met with some people because they had a couple questions and I sat down and as we were going through some of the things, one of the things I said is, well, we're not under the law. The Ten Commandments aren't for us. And one of the people was like, what? The Ten Commandments are, I've never heard anybody say that the Ten Commandments aren't for this. I was very happy to say that one of the other people that was there, they kind of turned and looked and the other person goes, yeah, yeah, the Ten Commandments aren't for us. We're not under the law. It's like, nobody's ever taught me that. See, that's a problem. Here's a person, a believer, it's been in different churches, and no one's ever taught them that they're not under the law. So there are lots of Christians that they don't know better. But here you're dealing with the problem that there are people that should know better, and it's a moronic debate. They just, it's just a tennis match. When our girls played tennis, probably one of the things personally that I hated the most was uh, a long volley. If you guys don't know what a long volley is, that's when the players on both sides, it's just the ball just keeps going back and forth, back and forth. And they're always, each tennis player is trying to position themselves finally to, to, to put the ball in a place that the other person cannot return it, right? But sometimes those volleys would go on and you'd just be like, oh, just get over it already because you're just like, but that sometimes is what happens with a moronic debate. You've laid out plain and clear what the word of God says and you got people, oh, I got another verse. Oh, I got another verse. Oh, I got another verse. Or I got another verse, and I'm telling you, if they want, they'll find endless verses until eventually they'll start repeating verses. <laughs> so that's a moronic debate. When you've laid out plain and simple, this is what the Word of God says, and that person, they just kind of keep pulling out verses and verses and verses. It's, and it's a, let's take a look at a couple of other statements Paul says about this. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to go to verse 3. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3. And it says, if anybody teaches differently. Now that goes back. He uses that same word over in chapter 1. And what he meant by differently is differently than what I taught you, Timothy, and differently than I taught the church here in Ephesus, which is where Timothy is. He says, if anybody teaches differently and does not consent to healthy words concerning our Lord Jesus Christ or those from him, that would be the words in the upper room that we're going over on Wednesday night for the, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and those that are measured by a way of life that honors God and uses scripture that's not for us in a way that honors him. Okay, if they do not do that, that one is puffed up. He doesn't understand anything. In fact, he is, this is this word, he is diseased. He is diseased about debates and fights and fights over words from which comes envy. Envy is when you feel hurt that somebody else got that and you didn't. 
envy, and strife. We're going to look at the word strife in a little bit, but argumentativeness. You just want to argue. Blasphemies. Blasphemies is when you make a claim about God or others that's not true. It's kind of like a lie, but it's a slanderous kind of lie. And then he goes on, and evil suspicions. And he says, these are then the wranglings of men that are corrupt with regard to their mind, and they have, and this is a uh, a word that is put in, in put in the middle voice, they have deprived themselves of the truth. It's not that they are deprived because somebody else deprived it of them. They've deprived themselves because they want something that God says I'm not doing, and as a result, they're depriving themselves of the truth. And this is what this comes down to. If you went back to chapter 1 here in 1 Timothy, you find out that, and flip back over to chapter 1 just so you can see what this is about. 1 Timothy chapter 1. It says in verse 6, after he's talking about the way that they were supposed to be teaching, he says in 1 Timothy 1, 6, For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless talk or empty words, desiring to be teachers of the law, but they do not understand or they're not mindful of the things that they say or the things about which they make confident assertions. In other words, Paul says people that are teaching the law today, they really don't know the law. Paul was raised under the law. He knew what the law was like, but you got other people that want to be under the law. And if you go back to 1 Timothy 6, I think there's a reason for them wanting to be under the law. Notice what he says of these people. Verse 6, 1 Timothy 6, 6. But godly, oh, excuse me, it's the end of verse 5. I skipped the end of verse 5. They suppose godliness or a God-honoring way of life to be a means of gain. But he said a God-honoring life is a means of great gain when it's accompanied with contentment. In other words, whatever you have is fine. Paul, that's, Paul says over in Philippians, I'm fine. If, if I'm hungry, I'm fine. If I'm full, I'm fine. I'm fine whether I have or whether I have not. That kind of contentment, he says, that is really, that's great gain. When it's involved with, with a way of life that lives God. Honors God, excuse me. Now, this is the reason I take you over there and talk about that. Is because I believe the reason, one of the reasons these people wanted to teach law, when you go through 1 Timothy, is that they wanted to teach the law because they saw in the law that if you obeyed the law, what was one of the results that you got out of it? You got material blessings, material prosperity. You had good health. Your kids had good health. Your livestock had good health. Your crops were healthy. Your bread bowl was full. The enemy would come to raid you. One of you would go out and send seven of them running. <laughs> and this was the example under the law. And this is what some of them are looking at. And they're going, we like that. The problem with that is... Why was that true under law? Were there, were there natural laws in place that if you obeyed the law, natural laws kicked in and all everything went right? No. Why is it that you could farm for six years and skip the seventh year? God. That was God. God guaranteed that their crop in the sixth year would be, would be more than you would normally get so that they could last through an off-season. Do you have that promise today? Do you have that promise, Jeff, that you could say, I'm going to skip farming this year. It's the seventh year. God will guarantee we'll get enough to get us. No, we don't have that promise today. You don't have that promise today. And so God doesn't stand. That's one of the reasons that blasphemy is involved with these guys, because they're, they're going to be putting words in God's mouth that God's doing that today when he's not doing that today. And so, 1 Timothy 6 some of these people are diseased about debates. And it's a debate about law, again, by the way. Turn with me over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to go back up. Uh, there's a verse we want to get to, but I want to go back to verse 14. Look at these statements here. He says, These things remind them, witnessing firmly before God, that they are not you not to fight over words, for that is not useful. It's not helpful. Rather, it overthrows those that hear. In other words, if you're in church, 
and uh, let's say Aram and I get into some theological debate on a topic, and we're just sitting there going back and forth and back and forth, debating back and forth, back and forth on this thing, and the rest of you all sit and listen to us debate back and forth. Paul says something here that, that a lot of people that do that don't think about, and that is what it does is it overturns those that are listening. The other people that are sitting listening in there, they don't go, oh, yeah, great argument, Tim. Great ar You know what happens when you let that debate go on and on? People get confused. And next thing you know, you get people because you're letting these people run off at the mouth while you're going back and forth and you're treating them like, yeah, we're just going gonna to treat you as an equal in this. We're going back and forth. Next thing you know, the people that are listening in are going, I, I, I don't know who's right now. I thought for sure that the Bible said we were living like this, but now I don't know. And he says it overturns, overturns those that hear. So he says, be diligent then to present yourself a work approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of the truth, or literally cutting a straight path. You just cut a straight path. Don't get deep. Don't get caught up in deviating with these arguments that these people want to take you on. Verse 16, but avoid, and my Bible says worldly chatter. Literally, it's profane and empty chatter. Stay away from those things, for they will only advance to more and more ungodliness or more and more lifestyle that does not honor God. And their talk spreads like a gangrene among whom are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have gone astray from the truth saying that the resurrection has already taken place and then they have upset or overturned the faith of some. In other words, some of them, it has taken their very faith in God's promises and it's turned it on its head. This is what happens when you get involved with people that don't teach the word of God right. They may be a pithy, they may be a way better speaker than I will ever be, way more intelligent than I ever am, but they don't handle the word right. And they overturn the faith and... Um, I've lost my place. Overturn the faith of some, and I think I still have missed. Oh, it's the first part of verse 18. I think I, maybe I skipped over it. I don't think I did. Who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. Now, I'm sticking my neck on in this, and I've shared this with you before. I think when he says that they say that the resurrection has already taken place, I personally, as I, the more I look at this, I think these are people, because they're not cutting a straight path in this, I think these are people that are, this is essentially an early version of amillennialists. Everybody knows what an amillennialist is? An amillennialist is a person that does not believe in the literal 1,000 years part of the kingdom that the book of Revelation tells us exists, which means they have to ignore a whole bunch of Old Testament promises that there's going to be a physical kingdom with physical benefits that are going to be on the earth. And these people deny that because they say the, the resurrection's already taken place. How do they say that? Because that's what all millennialists say. They go to Revelation, they go to the first resurrection, because it talks over there, the first and the second. They say the first resurrection's already over. The first resurrection was spiritual. And what that means is that there's one general resurrection. So if you die, you're going to be resurrected in a general resurrection, and everybody raised in that general resurrection under all millennial theology, everybody's going to stand before the great white throne. And you're going to be judged at the great white throne. And it's going to be found out then whether or not you made it or didn't make it. And, and I've listened. Because this I, had, I was asked this question three or four months ago. I went and listened to a couple of these guys that teach this. And it's very interesting. Both of these well-known speakers, one has passed away when they had just three or four years ago, and the other one's still alive and still speaking. And both of those speakers said the same thing. Both of those Bible teachers, very well-known Bible teachers, both of them said the same thing. You can, can, you can kid yourself and to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, that I believe he died for my sins, that he was buried and he rose again. One of them did that. The other one did not actually articulate the gospel. But, but they, they can teach that, but you're kidding yourself because your works and your fruits are going to prove whether or not you really believed him or not. And so it's not until the future that you're going to find out for sure whether you really believed or you didn't believe. Understand? So that's what these guys are doing. And yet, verse 19, so what that does is it, it makes your future uncertain. Listen, if you go to church here, and you haven't heard us say this, let me say it right now. You ought to be able to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, and he was buried, and he rose again, and you're saved based on that and nothing else, which means 
You are secure for all time and eternity because it wasn't your work that secured that. It was Jesus Christ's work that did that. But if you take this other view that these people have, you don't know. You never know. Nevertheless, verse 19, nevertheless, the foundation of God stands firm with this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. So let everyone name the name of the Lord, abstain from wickedness. In other words, people come to them and they go, you teach eternal security. Well, then that means people are just going to do whatever they want. Paul says, he calls us, no, don't be like that. Don't just do whatever you want. Stay away from these things. But it doesn't change the fact that the, that the Lord knows those who are his. If you believed in him, he knows you believed in him. Even if you get messed up by bad teaching, he still knows you're his. Verse 20. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earth and some for honor and some for dishonor. You can imagine in their houses, they had vessels that they did all kinds of stuff with. Okay, The, the vessel that you store your grain in, in the house for what you're going to eat, is probably different than the one that you store your garbage and everything in that you're going to take outside and dump in the trash. You, you wouldn't want to mix those two up, would you? I wouldn't. So especially because a lot of these were clay. And once clay got permeated with mold and stuff from that in there, it would be hard, if not impossible, to get it out. In the, in the Old Testament, when they had vessels like that that were, got moldy, what did the law require them to do? Break them. You broke them. I'm not enforcing the law. I'm just saying they did that because you couldn't get that out of there. So he says there's different kinds of vessels. Therefore, if a, if a man cleanses himself from these, he is a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. In other words, when you get people that just want to argue and debate with you about whether you're living by the law or whether or not the kingdom is going to be real or not because they don't, they don't want to accept the, the testimony of Scripture and they just want to debate back and forth, he says, cleanse yourself from those guys. And we go, well, that seems kind of harsh, Paul. They're brothers in Christ. Paul isn't denying that these guys are brothers in Christ. He doesn't deny that because he says they're vessels in the household. But he says just because they're in the household doesn't necessarily mean that you need to rub elbows. There's other times he says you got brothers, they don't want to work. They're lazy. They're bums. He says, guess what? Don't eat with them even. Don't treat them like an unbeliever, he says, but don't even eat with those guys. You know, be buddy-buddy with people that don't want to do live the way they're supposed to. And when you got people that teach like this, he says, you cleanse yourself of them. You stay away from those vessels. You don't need to be around those people. They're not going to help you, Paul says. And then he goes on, verse 22. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. In other words, the youthful lust. And I've been there. I, I honestly have to say, I think I can see that God has matured me some because I find more and more that when people want to debate these things, I will maybe give them a scripture, but I don't want to sit there and just arm wrestle theologically with them over this stuff. Uh, there's better things to move on to than this. And so he's, that's what the youthful lust is. The youthful lust is, I can, I can win this fight. I can do this. I can convince this guy. I can prove him that he's wrong. I, he just hasn't seen all the verses that I've got. I just graduated from seminary. I know Greek and Hebrew. I know I've got a load of stuff. Just wait till he goes up against me. And a lot of those guys, they're on the other side going, <laughs> seriously, I've run into people like that and I was stupid and I was youthful and I got into debates and arguments that just go on and on and on. And they waste your time. Because he says, what you, should you do with your time? He says, you ought to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. In other words, the believers that don't want to debate and argue, they just really want to live the Christian life. They're, they're not going to get into the debates on the law because they know better. They're not going to chase after this nonsense that these other guys are doing. Because they they're understand living by grace. He says, you expend your time with them rather than trying to debate and argue with all these other people. So, Paul says over there to Titus, <clears throat> says over there to Titus, he says, to avoid these moronic debates. Secondly, the other thing, go back over there to Titus just so you can see where this is. 
Titus chapter 3. Avoid these moronic debates, this is Titus 3.9, and it says, and avoid genealogies. Now, what in the world does this mean, genealogies? Well, we have this again back over in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So flip back over there again to 1 Timothy 1. Why does he bring out the genealogies? 1 Timothy chapter 1, in verse, um, I think I've got the, oh, I, I know, I, we didn't go back up far enough, or I didn't go back up far enough in my notes. I do have it, 1 Timothy 1, 4, I do have it written there. I was just trying to make sure I had it written for you. Verse 4, That uh, let's go to verse 3. I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia to remain at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which only give rise to, oh, what's the word there? Debates. It's actually even a stronger form of that debate. That's what they do. And it goes back to what we read earlier in verses 6 through 8, the fact that these people want to be law teachers. Now, what does genealogies have to do with this? What does genealogies have to do with this? Okay, um, you don't have to stay in Titus 3 or 1 Timothy, but I want you to go over to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, and we're just going to look. This is stated twice here in Revelation 2 and 3, but we're going to go to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8. Revelation 2 and verse 8. Remember, these are seven letters to seven real churches dealing with real issues. And it says, And to the angel or the messenger of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and who has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews but are not. But they are a synagogue of Satan. In other words, by the time the book of Revelation comes along, you have, I believe, Gentiles that make up the churches. The church is becoming predominantly Gentile by this time. And they are trying to say that they are Jews. In fact, within Christianity, there's a large segment, a large segment of people that are Christians, or at least within Christendom, those that claim to be Christians, but their Christianity is based on something other than faith alone. And they assert that the church is the Israel of God and that we are spiritual Jews. But at the time that Paul is writing Titus and Timothy, and you can go back to Titus chapter 3, when Paul's writing Titus and Timothy and he talks about these genealogies, people were people still had access to something because the synagogues and temples... Most of them were still in existence. The temple was still in existence at that time. By the time Revelation is written, the temple's destroyed. This stuff's gone. But up there, they had records. Tons and tons of scrolls. And you could come up there, and if we were back in that day, and Dwight would have come up there and says, hey, I'm a Jew. I'm a descendant of my grandfather was this, and my grand, and he had the names. You could go up to the temple. You could find the thing. You could unroll those scrolls, and they kept diligent genealogies of everybody's birthright. In fact, from what I understand, and I, I may be wrong in my history, you could correct me if you've heard otherwise, but during World War II, when the Jews, or prior to World War II, when the Nazis were collecting Jews and bringing them together to get rid of them, one of the things that was still intact in a lot of the synagogues across Europe were books of genealogies dating back hundreds, if not millennia, that these people could tie their birth genealogy back to the family that they were parts of. Now, some of that stuff may have been broken in, in, in between. But this is the point. There are people that want to be Jews. They want to be Israelis. They, they're just like we're guys that want to live under the law that we were looking at. They want to be in it because they think there's prosperity. Well, there's people today that think that Jews get better promises than we do. Remember what Paul says in, in Hebrews? We get better promises. And Peter says, I saw Josh say this, Peter tells us in 2 Peter, we have the best, we have the best promises. Yeah. That's something better. And there are people today, people, I've got dispensational brothers and sisters in Christ that I read the stuff that they write 
And they, they bow down. They kiss the feet of the Jews. And I'm not talking to us to be anti-Semitic or rude to them. It's just that they treat them like they're a notch above us. And therefore, they do this. Well, what it does is that perpetuates this idea that some people think, well, I want to be a Jew then. And some of you may remember back, I don't know how many years ago, that we had some kids that came over here and ministered in our town, and some of the kids that came along came from Messianic congregations. Not Jewish! They're not Jews! But they thought that they were supposed to be living like Jews. They were Christian congregations trying to live like Jews. Which meant that they were keeping the dietary laws. Which made those people that were cooking food for them kind of put them in a bind, because there's stuff that's not kosher, that they can't eat. And all of this to say then that Paul says here in Titus chapter 3, shun these foolish debates and genealogies. You're going to get people that are going to, and they're going to pour through the genealogies and say, yeah, I go by Dwight, but they, but really Dwight's just a, a derivative of Levi. I don't know how you, I'm making that up. It's not really, but you get the point. They, in some way, they go, and, and my dad's name was, I can't remember the name, your dad's name. Less. Les. Okay, I don't know what you derive less from. Less is from Samuel. See, I'm just, I'm totally messing this up. But it shows you how foolish this was that people are trying, because that happened. I mean, in the Old Testament, you ever read the genealogies, and in one genealogy, this guy's the father and this guy's the son, and you're going, that's a different name. Over here in this genealogy, it's just, it's, but you see that they really are the same name, but there were different ways that you said the name. Most of you refer to me as Tim. I don't know that in my life that my, either of my grandmothers ever referred to me as Tim. Ever. Both of my grandmothers, they always called me Timothy. They always called me Timothy. But everybody else calls me Tim. <laughs> I'm fine with Tim. Just don't call me Timmy. <laughs> I remember in first grade getting mad at, oh, my name's not Timmy. <laughs> Back then I was Timothy. What? Oh, <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have said that. Now I've opened... You keep that Listen, can of worms closed, anyway. Okay. Anyway, but but the point was, people would pour through genealogies and they try to find legit. They try to give legitimacy to their claim to be a Jew. This is one of the things they were doing, and it's myths. One of the other things that was associated with genealogies also were myths. Now, one of the things that made this real easy with myths is, at the time the New Testament was taking place, where. What were the two tribes that were still around? Benjamin and Judah that were down there. Jerusalem was in Benjamin, and Judah was the tribe of David. Okay? And so you have those two tribes that are still down there. What happened to those other guys? What happened to those other ten tribes? They were hauled off. They were hauled off by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Thank you, Dan Dalkey. I know that date only because he drilled that into our heads. But in 722 B.C., they were taken away, and they were scattered throughout all the different kingdoms and connections that the Assyrians had. And then the Assyrians settled other people down in the land that they'd been in. And so there are people to this day that claim that you and I as Europe, of European, how many of you are of European descent here? Are there any of you that are of a non-European descent? See, they say if you're of European descent, there's a really good chance that you're a descendant of one of the ten tribes. There was a there was a guy back in I don't know when he started it back in in the in the 1900s, the 20th century, uh, rather than the 21st century. You had to be in the adult class to appreciate that comment, um, but. But he taught British Israelism. He taught that the Brit Britons, they were the descendants of the Saxons, and they were Saxons because they were Isaac's sons. How do you like that play on words? Anyway, all the same, this hasn't died. There are people to this day that in one way or another think maybe they are literally physically descendants of Israel or spiritually Israel. And this is why Paul tells Titus, he says, you don't get wrapped up in these moronic debates or this thing over genealogies. Now you understand? Hopefully you understand why people wanted under genealogies. Because they wanted to be Jews. Because they thought Jews got better blessings, better promises. And I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to say we're better than them. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just trying to say 
Christians foolishly want to be Jews because they think the Jews get something better. And they want that, see? It's people trying to steal something that's not theirs. In fact, if you are Jew today, you don't get Israel's or Jews' promises because you're part of the body of Christ and your identity has changed. And there's people who think, no, they double dip. They get church blessings and Jewish blessings. They don't appreciate what Paul says about the body of Christ. Back in Titus chapter 3. Oh, Ben was going to say something or ask a question. When you're talking about the Jewish promises, it's about the world. When you're talking about in Revelation, the, when God's judging, it talks about the love of the world. They kind of go together a little bit. It does. Yeah, it does. So it kind of just blends in. So it just, yeah. Yeah. You, 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 just to make sure I'm understanding you, you're saying because people really love the world, they really want that stuff that's associated with the world out there. Yeah. Yeah. Which, it, it, it maybe is a thing we don't like to hear, but you know, as a Christian, God has made no promise to you as a believer that there's anything you can do down here that guarantees that you're going to be successful in life, successful in your job, you'll be able to move up the ladder, that you're always going to have a full stomach, that your car, the house will always be paid off. Nothing. He doesn't make any of those problems. Are, are those things that most of us experience here? Yes. But it's not because God's made any special promise to you and I today. We don't have that promise. Like I said, Paul says it in Philippians 4. I know how to be content when I'm hungry, when I'm full. And that's something that we all need to be able to say that that's true of us. Okay. Now, Back over here in uh, Titus chapter 3, these people, what they're doing, if you remember, if you go back to Titus chapter 1, the reason he's bringing this up, Titus chapter 1, he says in verse 9, he's giving the qualifications for these elders, and one of those qualifications is that they hold firmly to the word that governs our conduct, that's good for how we live, so that they can take that part of the word that isn't for our conduct, and use it right. Now, there's a right use of that. I don't have to live by it to use it rightly. And the reason for that in verse 10 is for there are many rebellious ones or un unsubmissive, out of order ones, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those from the circumcision. That'd be Jews. And you must, you must silence them or the, the strong word in the Greek you muzzle them, just like you put a muzzle on a dog. That's what he says. You need to muzzle them. This is Titus 1, verse 11. They must be silenced or muzzled because they are upsetting or overturning whole families, teaching things they should not. What does it say there? For the sake of gain, shameful gain. They are teaching the Bible, specifically Old Testament Bible, for the purpose of making money. That's why that's what they're in it for. Sad commentary. Um, we have friends that that are retired as missionaries from working with uh, village missions, and they said they went to one of the village missions things recently, and I think they said there were twenty-seven or twenty-eight churches right here in the northwest, and that's just among the village missions churches that don't have pastors. And they can't get people to want to be pastors. Because who wants to pastor a church where you barely make a living? Or where you've got to work a job out there in the world and pastor at the same time? And people don't want to do that. And they say there's a lot of these guys that they're, they even go to seminary. They get a seminary degree. And then they go out there and they start finding, oh, this is what the church can pay me? I got four kids. How am I going to feed these guys? Oh, I'm going to drive school bus. I'm not doing that. I can keep driving for FedEx or something like that. I appreciate the fact Kevin Jeffries pastored all those years down there. Drove for FedEx just up until like three years ago. Drove for FedEx. I appreciate the fact that that's what he did because, I mean, their church just couldn't afford to provide for them sufficiently. I appreciate that. I've, I've worked a lot of jobs over the years here trying to take pressure off you guys. But I always have to tell you, I always thank you guys. I think you guys have done a good job. I mean, my family, we've never gone hungry. We've never gone hungry. We've never gone without heat. I appreciate that. Uh, but there are guys that don't want to do this. And why do I say all this? 
because these guys are teaching for money. And honestly, I think that there's some guys as pastors that when they go to, when it actually comes down to the opportunity to pastor, it's, well, the money's the thing that decides whether they're going to do it or not. <laughs> and if they can't do it, they don't pastor. And uh, maybe that's good because maybe they shouldn't be pastoring if, if it comes down to the fact that they're in it for the wrong reason, that it's a job. One of our professors used to always tell us, pastoring is based on a spiritual gift. It's not a vocation, it's an avocation. Okay. So anyway, he goes on and he tells you what these guys are doing. They're, they're doing this for the sake of gain. And then he goes uh, down to verse, um, let's go down to verse 14. He says, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of man who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. You know, if you're living by grace and faith, everything's clean. There's nothing off limits. You can eat pork. You're fine with that. You can eat shrimp if you want to do that kind of thing. You can do all that kind of stuff. You can do those kind of things. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Even their own minds and their consciences are defiled. And this is verse 16, very important. We'll come back to this next week again. But they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. I know God. I know God. But in reality, they don't be, uh, or they don't really know him with regard to their deeds, being detestable and disobedient, and they're worthless regarding any good deed or work. People that teach you how to live by the law today, they think that the law is how you do good things before God. But he says, no, that's not the way it is. They're actually unapproved with regard to their good works. Their good works really are nothing. So we'll go back over to Titus chapter 3. We've got a few more things to cover on this that we'll come back and pick up next week as we move into the next part of this. But he says shun. And that word that's translated shun here in, uh, in uh, verse 9, I'm just trying to find my, oh, I'm in the wrong verse. That's why I'm not finding it. Um, literally means to stand around. I was just trying to make sure I had the right word. In other words, these people come and they want to talk about it. And rather than, rather than coming up to meet them going, what are we going to talk about today? You're like, when they come up to you, you just kind of step around. You're like, no, nope, I'm not talking about that. Talking, we're going to talk more about that next week, exactly how Paul says to handle that specifically. But he says, shun or avoid, step out of the way of those individuals with regard to these, these debates, genealogies, and disputes about the law. And the word that's translated dispute, and there's two words. There's a word for fight. Which is a fight like within a battle. You got the lar you got a you got a larger battle, you got these fights that go on within there, and then you also have the word strife. Strife is a word of the works of the flesh. It means to be argumentative. It's the person that always wants to, to argue. They always want to pick a fight. They always want to, I don't know. Well, what about this? What about this? I've used it with regard to myself, because I've I've had to come to realize several many years back that this is one of the, I, every one of you has a propensity to certain works of the flesh. Every, every believer has some works of the flesh that they've got a propensity for. I, I have no propensity to want to get drunk. There's nothing appealing about that to me. But you know what? You say something that's wrong, and I'm like on that like, wait a second, no, that was not a red car, that was a blue car. <laughs> like, that's going to really change the course of life, what color car that was. But that's the kind of thing, Emily's probably gotten in and on that enough watching me do this over the years. That's what strife is. Strife is that contentiousness. It's that argumentativeness that we have that we want to just, and we just, mm, this, this. No, Jim, that was not the right Hebrew word. I'm looking at my Hebrew Bible and that was not right. Like, it's going to make any difference to anybody else in the Sunday school class that I point out. It's not that Hebrew word, it's this Hebrew word. Everybody's going, my, we... It all sounds like chicken scratch to me. You know, they can't, you know, doesn't make any difference. What he taught was still right. I'm just picking, I'm saying that would be the kind of thing that could happen. I'm not saying that that's what happened. Okay. I'm just using, but that could happen. I could disrupt Jim's class all the time by constantly saying, wrong word. Things like that. And so he says here in Titus chapter three, this idea of strife and disputes, but they're about the law. People want to talk about the law and you're getting in there, and he says, you avoid these things. In fact, when he talks about that word war, 
that fight in there, that's the same word that James uses over in James 4. He says, where do wars come from? They come out from your own, within you. They're your own desires. Wars, that word is actually just, it's just a, a stronger version of what's happening when you want to be argumentative. It starts off as a little bit of an argument. Next thing you know, we're at all out war. Started off with a little disagreement. Now we're at all out war. And he says, avoid these things. Because just as we see at the end, we'll just close with this. We'll come back and kind of pick this up at the beginning of next week. But they are unprofitable. Remember last time we were together, we saw that encouraging people to be engaged with other people in good works, that's profitable. But engaging in debates with people, he says, is unprofitable. In fact, I, many years ago, I wrote a whole paper on several pa passages that Paul uses where he basically tells Paul or tells Timothy and Titus, as well as some others, but mostly Titus and Timothy, knock it off. Quit getting wrapped up in fights and arguments about this stuff. It doesn't help anybody. In fact, what Paul actually seems to get is when you get wrapped up in, in fights and arguments, you become carnal. You go from this guy that's sitting there listening to all of a sudden you're shaking. And you can't hardly control yourself because you are so irate over this thing. And you become carnal. You become fleshly. In other words, technically, and I think I actually put this up there. We, um, that's what the law teacher is doing. Um, people are going to find endless reasons to debate. And did I put another one up there? Yeah. He said, avoid or sidestep around these people. Just stay away. Because in the end, we can kid ourselves all, the, all we want. Christians are being told all the time that we need to prep people to know stuff so we can debate with people. But Paul tells Timothy and tells Titus, debating doesn't get you anywhere. We have political debates. Do you think anybody actually ever changes their point of view when they listen to a political debate? Baloney. Every, the people that were on this guy's side are still on his side. They're just waving their banner even harder after the debate. And the people that are on this side, they're waving their banner every harder. And we're just, and it just, you don't have anybody in the middle going, hmm, baloney. And the same thing's true with biblical truth. People aren't sitting there and are won over by a debate. It doesn't help you. It doesn't help the person that's arguing. And it doesn't help anybody that's listening. Paul, we already saw that over in 2 Timothy 2. It doesn't. But we don't believe that. It's not profitable, Paul says. Why are we so hard-headed hard to not believe this and think, oh yeah, but I can turn it into a good thing. This isn't like the kind of debate that Paul and Barnabas were dealing. They're trying to say, you call these guys off. We don't want our work undermined out there. It's not we're debating to figure out whether we're right or you're right. That's not what was going on. This is a different kind of a debate. That's why Paul calls it a moronic debate. Because it's people that actually have disagreements on either side, and no one's going to win. In fact, even if you're spiritual and you are biblically right about what you hold to, by the time the debate's over, there's a very good chance, according to Scripture, you are now fleshly. You are now carnal. And is that really what you want to do? <laughs> and I've done that. I have had debates with people in years past, and I've left those debates shaking mad. It's not profitable. It's not profitable for you. It's not profitable for them. It's not profitable for anybody else. You know what was profitable? Spending time focusing on doing good works towards other believers. Or as Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, Pursuing righteousness, love, peace with those who are calling on the Lord out of a pure heart. Rather than arguing with those that want to argue, find those that just, they just want to know truth. They just want to appreciate what God's doing. I think it's very interesting. I come to this passage many times. We're going to come back. He's not done. It's a little bit more that he has to say about handling this. But just stop and think about what are you going to spend your time on? What are you going to spend your time on as a believer? Father, we're thankful that you have warned us away from things that uh, our sin nature really wants to get drawn into this kind of stuff. And uh, uh, you told us here, you told Timothy, uh, you've, told, you've told the Romans about this. We don't win. We actually, everybody's a loser in the end in these kind of things. 
And so help us as believers to recognize the things that are worthwhile, and that's actually spending time with other believers, encouraging other believers. And we're thankful for that privilege you give us of each one of us being able to serve, uh, maybe in the realm of our gift, maybe simply just as one believer to another. And we thank you for that. Amen.